Hello everyone, this is Make It Magical. I'm your host, Emily Sullivan. Thanks for joining me again. Or welcome if you're brand new to the show. Here I like to discuss everything Disney from the parks, movies, tips, tricks, secrets, and of course the history to help keep the magic alive. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode where I was joined by my co-ghost host husband. We really had a lot of fun recording that together. Clayton will be making an appearance every so often for more opinion-based episodes where I want them to be more conversational. However, for today's episode, I will be going at it solo. Han solo. (laughs) Hopefully there weren't just crickets out there and someone laughed at that dumb joke. But really, I hope you're not too disappointed that you're just stuck with me today. There will actually be a few firsts for this podcast episode, this being my first history-based episode, and will be my longest, so I'm going to break this up into two parts. When I was researching for this episode, I eventually just had to cut myself off because I took a look at my notes and they were really starting to get out of hand. I just got so fascinated with learning more about today's topic, and I truly could have continued just researching and researching till I had, who knows, maybe a 10-part episode, but I didn't want to do that to you guys today, so I tried to limit myself. Without further ado, today I am talking about the leader of the club that's made for you and me, M-O-U-S-E, that's right, it's Mickey Mouse. I'll be discussing his entire story from his origins through his influence even into modern day. Now I have to start off the story with the quote where Walt Disney famously states, I only hope we never lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a mouse. I think me being a Disney fan, it would be a huge failure on my part, even probably just a Disney sin, if I didn't begin the story that way, (laughs) just from how much you hear that quote. But Walt Disney actually did say that on a televised program in October 27th, 1954. Of course, this is all in reference to the creation of Mickey Mouse. While Mickey's creation was essentially the start of Walt Disney's success, there is a large part of this story that needs to be explained to fully understand why Mickey was even created. That being Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Now, general knowledge of his existence has become much more well-known within the past maybe 10 to 15 years. But prior to that, even huge Disney fans... And I'm even guilty of this. I had never heard of him, let alone many other people. And it's okay if you haven't heard of him too. It's not like he's uh, well publicized. So who's Oswald and how did he lead to Mickey? I'm going to set the scene. Our story starts way back in Hollywood in 1927, after Walt and Roy Disney had founded Walt Disney Studios with an additional cartoonist, named Ub Iwerks as part of their team. I'm going to introduce a new character into the story. His name is Charles Mintz, and he had already been working with Walt Disney Studios as a distributor for some previous shorts they had created. So Charles Mintz got word 
that Universal Pictures wanted to get into the cartoon business. So he passed this information on to Disney to go ahead and create a new cartoon character that he could eventually sell and distribute to Universal. Disney chose to make this new character a rabbit since there were already two popular animated cats at the time, Felix the Cat and Crazy Cat. Disney stated that he wanted his characters to be somebody. He didn't want them to just be a drawing. Oswald was actually one of the first cartoon characters that even had a personality. At the time, in animation, any kind of character was just simply identified through their design. But through Oswald, he wanted him to be defined as an individual through his movements and mannerisms and even acting. Disney envisioned Oswald to be peppy, alert, saucy, and venturesome, while also keeping him neat and trim. After Oswald was eventually created, Charles Mint signed a contract with Universal on March 4, 1927, which would guarantee a total of 27 Oswald the Lucky Rabbit cartoons. Basically, Charles Mintz served as a middleman producer between Disney and Universal through his company for these series of short cartoons. The big distinction to remember here is that while Disney created Oswald, Universal actually owned the rights. Oswald ended up actually proving to be very successful and even allowed the Walt Disney Studio to grow to a staff of nearly 20 people. About a year after the original contract with Universal, Disney felt confident with this newfound success to travel to New York and hopefully negotiate a pay increase for any new Oswald shorts. Prior to Disney's departure of iWorks, the other animator that originally was working with the Disney studio, warned Walt that Charles Mintz was actually offering the other Disney Studios animators more money to instead come work for him. Walt kind of didn't really believe iWorks, but upon his arrival in New York, Charles Mintz ended up telling Disney that he should settle for a 20% pay cut. Mintz even threatened to start his own studio and produce the series himself if Disney refused to accept these reductions. Disney did end up declining Mintz's ultimatum and lost most of his animation staff, except iWorks and some other apprentice artists, Les Clark and Wilfred Jackson, who also chose to remain with him. So it's pretty sad because Disney thought of himself as the owner to Oswald. But during that meeting with Charles Mintz, he found out that Universal controlled the copyright and all the profits associated with Oswald's, regardless of Disney being the creator of these short films. Walt was even quoted as saying, I was in New York at the time. I'd been producing this series of pictures for a company there. They were about a rabbit called Oswald, but I lost that. They took it away from me, so I had to go at it alone. Just before Walt left New York to head back to Hollywood, he sent his brother Roy a telegram without any mention of this meeting with Charles Mintz and this possible career-ending fate. He instead informed Roy when he would arrive back home and said, don't worry, everything's okay. When in reality, 
Walt knew nothing about this was okay, and he would have to come up with some kind of new character fast and be sure that this time he would retain the rights. He was not going to make the same mistake again. Here's another great quote from Walt Disney about this time in his life. He said, Mrs. Disney and I were coming back from New York on the train, and I had to have something. I said, by the time we get to Hollywood, I must have something. I can't tell them I've lost Oswald. So I have this mouse in the back of my head, because a mouse is sort of a sympathetic character, in spite of the fact that everybody is frightened of a mouse, including myself. Waltz eventually even went on to write an essay in 1948 titled What Mickey Means to Me and states, he popped out of my mind onto a drawing pad 20 years ago on a train ride from Manhattan to Hollywood at a time when the business fortunes of my brother Roy and myself were at lowest ebb and disaster seemed right around the corner. While I was researching, I even found some sources speculating that the idea of Mickey Mouse originated from a pet mouse Disney adopted when he was younger, but I couldn't really find any official confirmation whether this was the true inspiration for the character or not. While Disney had this idea of a mouse in his head, he also asked of iWorks to start drawing up new character ideas. iWorks tried sketches of various animals like dogs and cats, but none of these really appealed to Disney. He even came up with a female cow and male horse, which were also rejected. But very interesting, these designs would be used later on for Disney shorts and lead to the creation of the Disney characters Clarabelle Cow and Horace Horsecaller. Even a male frog was also rejected and eventually used when Iwerks founded his own studio for a series called Flip the Frog. Disney's original choice of name for this new character was Mortimer Mouse, but Lillian, his wife, thought it too pompous, so she suggested Mickey instead. Iwerks also revisited Disney's provisional sketches of the mouse to make the character easier to animate. Really, Disney was the one that conceived the idea of using a mouse, but Iwerks was the one that helped further refine and develop the character. The development of Mickey actually had to be done in secret, since Disney still had to produce those final Oswald cartoons that he still contractually owed mints. The name Mortimer Mouse did actually get used in later years for the Disney company. It was given to several different characters in the Mickey Mouse universe, those being Minnie Mouse's uncle, <laughs> who appears in several comic stories. One of Mickey's antagonists who competes for Minnie's affections in various cartoons and comics. And one of Mickey's nephews named Morty. The first time that Mortimer and Mickey Mouse actually met was in a 1936 animated short called Mickey's Rival. One really big misconception about Mickey is many believe that his first cartoon was Steamboat Willie. However, the first ever Mickey Mouse cartoon actually completed was Plain Crazy. The short Plain Crazy was inspired by Charles Lindbergh's heroic first solo flight across the Atlantic. Actually, of Iwerks animated Mickey and Plain Crazy entirely on his own. It took him about 700 drawings a day to create this short. 
Plane Crazy eventually premiered in Hollywood on May 15th, 1928 in the form of a single test screening, but it failed to find a distributor. And the same instance happened for the second Mickey feature created, The Galloping Gaucho. It's pretty sad at this time, even one distributor remarked to Walt, they don't know you and they don't know your mouse. One website even labeled this man as being an unpleasant distributor. So the Disney company was off to a pretty rocky start here with Mickey. However, following the 1927 sensation of the first ever sound film, The Jazz Singer, Disney had the idea to use synchronized sound on the third Mickey short, which would eventually become Steamboat Willie. I do have to veer off this history lesson just momentarily and (laughs) bring up the story of when I was younger. I mean, you all probably know what wet willies are. It's where you stick your finger in your mouth and put it in someone's ear. Trust me, this has to do with Steamboat Willie. Don't worry, I'll get there. <laughs> but when I was younger, instead of calling it a wet willie, I would call them Steamboat Willies. So growing up, that's kind of what my whole family and I would always call them. I'd go around and give a wet willie to my dad and just, yeah, Steamboat Willie. <laughs> Trust me, I'm not a complete weirdo. I don't still go around just sticking my finger in people's ears. This is, you know, just me being a goofy little kid loving Disney. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. I had to share that story. Back to our regularly scheduled history lesson. Since Steamboat Willie was Mickey's for short to find a distributor, it's actually considered by the Disney company as Mickey's debut. So that's where this whole misconception that Steamboat Willie is Mickey's first appearance comes from, where it wasn't his actual first animated short, but it was his actual debut into society. There were animation companies that had previously released sound cartoons in the mid-1920s, but these cartoons didn't keep the sound synchronized throughout the entire film. Steamboat Willie was a pivotal moment for animation and was a hit with audiences for combining story, animation, sound effects, and even humor. Disney actually had the sound recorded with a click track that kept the musicians on the beat. This precise timing is very apparent during the turkey in the straw sequence, the very famous part of the short when Mickey's actions exactly match the accompanying instruments from these musicians. So yeah, the turkey in the straw, it's the do 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 Right, that's all. <laughs> that's all I'm gonna do for you guys, so I don't hurt your ears. <laughs> I'm just gonna veer off this Mickey story for a little bit and give a shout out to the Walt Disney Family Museum. They have a fantastic interactive exhibit showcasing how the animators pulled off matching the music with the animation. <laughs> they. Uh, They have a little video going to show you the turkey and the straw sequence. And they have it where guests who are visiting the museum can take place at a different instrument. And you have to match up playing the instrument as it is happening in real time on the video. It's very fun. The best spot to take if you want to do this exhibit is kind of grab onto this little pulley and... (laughs) There's a section 
in the short where Mickey is swinging a cat over his head and it's like, rare, rare. So one person has to make the sound of this cat screaming. So they have to pull this little knob to time the cat going rare, rare with the animation. It's usually pretty busy in there for good reason, because everybody wants to try their hand at matching up with Steamboat Willie. The tune that Mickey whistles in the short is from the song Steamboat Bill by Arthur Collins. One really cool addition, which I'm not even sure what year they started doing this, but before a new Disney animated feature starts, they have the little Walt Disney Animation Studios logo and they show a sequence of Mickey turning the wheel in Steamboat Willie and he's whistling the Steamboat Bill song, the Yeah, I'm not going to whistle it because <laughs> I can barely whistle. So that's, again, all you're going to get out of me. <laughs> okay, back to the actual story. The overall look of Mickey started to change in Steamboat Willie when compared to the previous two shorts. In particular, his eyes were more simplified to large dots, and this is the look that basically established his appearance for later cartoons. Fun fact, Walt Disney did actually voice Mickey Mouse for this cartoon. And something I just learned, he was also the voice for Minnie in Steamboat Willie as well. This short premiered on November 18th, 1928 in New York's Colony Theater. It proved to be so popular that it was even talked about more than the feature film that it was meant to just compliment. Walt even received $1,000 for a two-week run, which was the highest sum ever paid for a cartoon on Broadway. Steamboat Willie was essentially what saved Walt Disney Studios and paved the way for Mickey to reach his international stardom. It also proved so successful that it allowed for widespread distribution of the two previous Mickey Mouse shorts, but now they were able to bring in the addition of sound. Over the years, there's actually been a lot of debate over when Mickey's official birthday even is. In 1978, Dave Smith, who is the founder of the Disney Archives, determined that the premiere of Steamboat Willie should be considered Mickey Mouse's true birthday because it was his first public appearance. This is kind of what the official date has been decided on, November 18th, 1928 also marks Minnie Mouse's birthday since Steamboat Willie was also her debut in two short films. Here's some Disney trivia for you. Does anybody know what Mickey's first words were? I'll give you a second to think about it. Do, 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 do. His first words were hot dogs. He didn't actually say this until the 1929 animated short called The Carnival Kid. This episode was pretty historic in animation history because it was the first time a cartoon character ever spoke. It's widely believed that Mickey's first in-color cartoon appearance was in the band concert. However, his actual first appearance was in a short called The Parade of Award Nominees, and this actually premiered in 1932, but it was only created specifically for the Academy Awards and never actually shown to the public at large. 
So this is where a lot of people get this misconception that the band concert was first because nobody really saw this parade of the award nominees. However, his first official in color appearance was the band concert in 1935. It's a nine minute animation featuring Mickey Mouse and his friends playing in an outdoor concert. Mickey stars as the band's conductor leading the rest of the band. It actually never received an Academy Award nomination, but it has become one of the most highly acclaimed Disney shorts. When you compare this in-color cartoon to the Carnival Kid short that was created seven years earlier, that's not really that much time, but when you see the difference between how much animation has progressed in this short time span, it's really impressive. While the band concert was the first official Disney cartoon in color, it wasn't the first ever animation in color. Despite the great relationship that Disney had with Ub Iwerks back in the day, Iwerks ended up deciding to leave Disney to pursue his own projects. His first project after leaving Disney was actually a short film called Fiddlesticks. Fiddlesticks was an animated cartoon short starring Flip the Frog, which I mentioned earlier on, um, who was that male frog character that Iwerks originally drew up for when they were trying to create Mickey. But the short with Flip the Frog was actually the first ever animation produced with both color and sound. 1930 was the year that Mickey merchandising really took off. This was the year when the first Mickey Mouse doll was designed, the first Mickey book was published, and the first Mickey Mouse comic strip was published. At the peak of this comic's popularity, it was found in 40 different newspapers and in 22 countries. One of Walt's first Academy Awards was actually an honorary one for the creation of Mickey, and he received this award in 1932. By 1933, the first Mickey watch was made that we all know and love, where his arms move around to tell you the time. It was originally sold for $3.75 before dropping down to $2.75. And even to this day, Mickey merchandise is so popular, it makes up about 40% of all consumer products revenue for the Disney company. In 1935, Walt was actually presented with a medal by the League of Nations because Mickey had become an international symbol of goodwill. Mickey went on to appear in over 130 films. While Mickey primarily appeared in short films, he did occasionally make an appearance in feature-length films as well. By 1936, Walt Disney felt that the studio really needed to boost the popularity of Mickey so he decided on featuring Mickey in Fantasia. While Disney was starting to make these decisions when it came to Fantasia, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was on the verge of becoming a blockbuster, and it was actually suggested that Dopey should play the famous apprentice role that Mickey eventually took over. But Walt really wanted to have Mickey fulfill that and get a chance to be in his first ever feature film. In 1940, Fantasia premiered at the same theater that Steamboat Willie had premiered 12 years prior. And Walt Disney described Mickey's debut in Fantasia as the greatest thrill of Mickey's acting career. 
In total, 10 of Mickey's shorts were nominated for Academy Awards for Best Animated Short Film over the years, one of which was Lend a Paw, which won the award in 1941. It's kind of funny because the short was actually more centered around Pluto than Mickey himself. The last Mickey short that Walt Disney was involved in was called The Simple Things in 1953. The studio just became overrun with so many commitments and Walt Disney was so busy that he wouldn't actually resume any further Mickey shorts prior to his death in 1966. It wouldn't be for another 30 years that Mickey was even featured in another cartoon, that being Mickey's Christmas Carol in 1983. His next short wasn't released until 1995 in Runaway Brain, so that was a 42-year gap between Mickey shorts. Well, everyone, I'm very sorry to say that this is where I'm going to end part one of Mickey's history. Stay tuned for next week. I will be releasing part two where I'll dive into how Mickey's design, his voice, even his personality has changed significantly over the years. And I'll, of course, even talk about how his influence is present in the Disney parks and Oswald actually might be coming back into the story. You'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> hope you enjoyed this more bite-sized history episode. Really hope you don't mind I decided to break this up into two parts, but you can always give me feedback if you'd rather I do my history episodes a little bit differently in the future. I just wanted to say how much it means to me that you stuck with it and continued listening to my podcast. I still have a lot to learn when it comes to podcasting, but I'm so excited to continue growing and improving the show for all of you. All of the support truly means so much to me. I can't even put it into words, honestly. Just a huge, huge thank you from the bottom of my heart. It, it really means the world to me. Thank you so much, everyone. Okay, better stop myself so I don't get all sappy here. <laughs> if any of you have a comment, question, just want to reach out to me or have some kind of Disney-related story you'd like me to share on the podcast in the future, you can always email me at makeitmagicalpod at gmail.com. You can also find me on my socials at Make It Magical Pod on Instagram and Make It Magic Pod on Twitter. And of course, if you are enjoying what you're hearing, please rate, review, subscribe. I'll leave a link to my Patreon page in the show notes if you do want to donate. And I will also include uh, all my information for my email and socials for you there as well. Okay, everybody, I hope you have a great rest of your week. And stay tuned for part two of Mickey History. Be kind to each other and let's make it magical. Bye, everybody.